all those remarks about Second World War, I was in it myself. <laughs> Reminds me of, I was down in the island of Jamaica some years ago, sharing in their, their Easter conference. They have about 5,000 people come out of that uh, from all across the island. And they were telling me the story of a, one of the local brothers who uh, liked to get a hold of a new word, and a uh, big word especially, a new word, one he'd never used. And uh, he liked to uh, get, to say it and get the savor of it and the feel of it and to use it. And uh, sometimes he wasn't very wise, didn't know uh, exactly what the word meant, but it was a new word, he liked it. And, and at the prayer meeting this particular night, they asked if somebody would get up and pray for Brother So-and-So in a very serious condition in the hospital was having an operation next day, would somebody pray for him? So this fellow got up and said, Oh Lord, we do pray that our beloved brother will have a successful post-mortem. <laughs> well, I see somebody didn't get it. <laughs> Now, my wife, she who must be obeyed, <laughs> has told me that I must remember that this service ends at 8.15. I will remember. I will put my watch up here. And you see me do that? Now you can forget it. <laughs> Let's please turn to Psalm 103. Verse 1, bless the Lord, O my soul. Verse 22, bless the Lord, O my soul. That is what they call an envelope psalm. It simply means that, uh, that the very first statement is the same as the very last statement. And the very last statement is the same as the very first statement. You are completely enveloped in the psalm by the words, Bless the Lord, O my soul. The idea is, of course, that when you get down to the end of that psalm, Bless the Lord, O my soul, you haven't really got to the end, you've got back to the beginning. And so you go through it again. And when you get down to the end of the psalm, Bless the Lord, O my soul, you're not at the end, you're back at the beginning. And you read it again. You get locked in. And that's where God would like us to be in our spiritual experience. He'd like us to be locked into this time. Bless the Lord, O my soul. It's David's Hallelujah Chorus. It is one great paean of praise. Verses 1 to 5, we are introduced to God's man. Verses 6 to 7, we are introduced to God's mind. Verses 8 to 18, we are introduced to God's mercy. Verses 19 to 22, we are introduced to God's might. Bless the Lord, O my soul. No sooner does David pick up his pen 
Then he puts it back down again and picks up a paintbrush. And in those first five verses, what he does, he paints for us five portraits of God's man. First of all, he sees the patriarch. And then he sees the penitent. And then he sees the patient. And then he sees the pauper. And then he sees the prince. And then he sees the pensioner. And each one of these five pictures is worth looking at. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. I think David wrote that towards the end of his long and very eventful life. What an adventuresome life he'd had. The youngest son of an insignificant uh, Bethlehem father. A crowd of very bossy brothers who were all determined to cut him down to size. And keep him in his place. A very determined sister. He'd been a shepherd in his youth. He'd known the danger of the wilds. Even as a teenager, he'd known what it was like to tangle with a lion and with a bear. Uh, he had been astonished one day to, to get a message. Come on home. Come on, David. Come on home. Your dad wants to see you. He come running in from the field, all flushed and panting, standing there in front of this old man. Recognized him as the prophet Samuel. To his astonishment, the old man had taken an, an anointing oil and poured it upon his head and anointed him, that teenage boy, youngest of a very big family, to be the next king of Israel. And then single-handedly gone down into the valley of Elah to destroy him that had the power of death and kill Goliath of Gath and become a national hero overnight appointed court musician to play the harp to the king when the king's insane moods were upon him. Very dangerous position indeed. Chief musician to a madman. Never knew if he's going to come home. In one piece. He, he, he earned by his integrity and his ability the malicious hate of some very high-placed courtiers around the king. He earned also the hatred of the king. Moved with envy and jealousy. Couldn't stand aside of him. Tried to kill him. Twenty-four different occasions, mark you. Over the next dozen years, King Saul tried to murder David in cold blood. One way or another, by this way or by that. Talk about an exciting life. Hairbreadth escapes, fugitive in Gath. He knew all about exile and danger, battle and the sword. He knew what it was like to be a displaced person. 
are hunted out law with a price on his head. To be hungry and thirsty and at his wit's ends. He knew all about that. Then he had become king. And God had kept his word and his sacred promise and had delivered him from all his dangers and placed him on the throne of Israel and even then he wasn't through. Sorrow after sorrow, his favorite son stole away the hearts of his people and raised the standard of rebellion and he was driven back into exile. But it all had come out in the end. And this is David's testimony, this psalm. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Oh, praise God. What a wonderful God he is. He had failed God, he knew that, but God had never failed him. In spite of it all, in spite of sorrow, sickness, sin and scandal, shame and success, God had been with him. Oh, he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. He could think of a countless thousand of themes of praise. As he looked back over that long, eventful, exciting life of his, just the tip of the iceberg shows in the sacred scripture. When we get to heaven, we can, we'll probably spend uh, two or three hundred years just uh, talking to David and having him tell us the rest of the story. And all down through those years he'd seen God's hand on his life. And now with his harp in his hand and hallelujahs in his heart, he says, bless his holy name. Bless his holy name. That's a good lesson for us. We are, we are far more prone to grumble, complain and find faults and blame God instead of bless God. George Muller of Bristol used to say that he considered it the first and most important duty of the day to get his own soul happy in the Lord. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Forget not all his benefits. The praising man is the prevailing man. That's the secret of it all. I was just thinking a little while ago we had a phone call from our son in Winston-Salem. He graduated some years ago from Bob Jones University. I thought one time he was going to graduate from prison. <laughs> and I remember, I remember those difficult years. We were living in the Atlanta area and he, he was just in his early teens and he was so difficult to handle. Into all kinds of trouble. Ran away from home. And it just seemed to be one thing after another. And it, it, it used to get to us, it used to get to his mother particularly. And she was moping around the place and grumbling and bumbling and blaming God. Why, what had she done to deserve all this? Then one day, God showed her. He said, Jesus said to her, what have I ever done to you? Except nothing. Why are you mad at me? Have I stopped loving you? Have I failed? A 
I changed? And she decided that instead of grumbling and mumbling about the place, she'd start to praise the Lord. And so she did. I went when our boy used to come home and, and, and try his little tricks, you know, the, 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 the little games that uh, those teenage kids play to keep you in turmoil. And some of them very dangerous games. When he came home and tried his little tricks, they didn't work anymore. He found his mother sitting at the piano singing. And I tell you, within six months, that boy was saved and restored the Lord and and uh, wanted to go Bob Jones University. And that's what David discovered. You can trust God. He won't let you down. He's in charge. He hasn't changed. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. Bless the Lord. Oh, my soul. There's the patriarch looking back over his eventful life, hairbreadth escapes, dangerous situations, never knowing sometimes where his next meal was coming from. Having to fly from pillar to post, always with Saul's bloodhounds on his track for many years. And then the awful things that happened in his family. He says, bless God. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Forget not all his benefits. What a forgetful people we are. And then the the next picture he paints, he paints the picture of the penitent. He forgiveth all thine iniquities. How about that for an item of praise? I mean, you, you meditate on that for a little while and you'll be shouting hallelujah. He Forgive most of your iniquities. Is that what it says? He forgives all your iniquities except the real bad ones. He, 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 he forgives all your iniquities except the real mean, spiteful, nasty little ones. Oh no. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities. You know, the word for iniquities in this context is a very strong one. It doesn't mean our mistakes. The Bible never says that Jesus died for our mistakes. He died for our sins. The word that's translated iniquities is the Hebrew word avon, which means perverseness and the very bentness of human nature. It's, It's those bent, twisted, warped things that we do that come out of a warped, bent, twisted human nature. And the word for forgiven is a lovely word too. It means to pass over. It's never used of anybody except God. And it's interesting, you know, to compare what he says there in verse 3, who forgiveth all thine iniquities, because when God forgives, he forgets. He passes over. He, 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 he no longer ceases. As he, as he did the children of Israel in the land of Egypt, when he saw the blood, he passed over them. He didn't see their iniquities. He saw the Egyptians. God passes over. And you compare that with what you have in verse 14. He remembereth that we are dust. 
Now the same God who forgets our sins remembers that we are sinful. That simply means that uh, God forgets what man remembers, that's our iniquities, and God remembers what man forgets, our infirmities. That's the kind of God we have. When God forgives, he forgets. One of the titles given to Satan, he's called the accuser of the brethren. That's one of his titles. That nice name. There's all kinds of names given to the devil in the Bible. And they all describe his character. And one of his characters is, one of the things he likes to do, he is the accuser of the brethren. What, what we must remember is that Satan is far too clever to come into the presence of God to tell lies about us. Besides, he doesn't need to. He knows perfectly well that when he comes into the presence of truth, lies perish. No use going into the presence of God to tell lies about us. He gets flung out on his ear. Besides, he doesn't have to eat. He simply has to go into the presence of God and tell the truth about us, doesn't he? I wonder how many things he got on you this past week. How many things he got on me? Here, you know that preacher fellow of yours? Do you know what he did on the way to meeting last Sunday? Had a drag out fight with his wife on the way to breaking the bread. That ever happened to you? All over his wife's fingernail polish. I mean, what a thing to fight off about on the way to me. I don't suppose you have thought about that. Or something just as dumb. Kid chewing gum or something. Have a great big fight about it. You know that wolf, hateless evangelist of yours? You know what he did? Told a lie. Deliberate lie. Sold a car. Told the buyer it was in good condition. He knew all the time the transmission was slipping. That's that, that, that preacher fellow of yours. Oh, well, I'm so glad that when God forgives, he forgets. He forgets it forever. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the word for forgiveness means to take away and put somewhere else. Uh, that's the way God deals with our sins. He takes them away, puts them somewhere else. Do you know where he put them? What he says, he puts them in the depths of the sea. He says he puts them behind his back. Do you know where else he puts them? He puts them on Jesus. That's where he put us. He took them away and put them somewhere else. And when Jesus died on the cross of Calvary, he didn't die for his own sins because he didn't have any. In fact, he couldn't die because the wages of sin is death and he'd never sinned, so he could never die. 
The only reason he died was because God had taken our sins and put them somewhere else. Put them on him. He bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He's taken our sins and put them somewhere else. But as a result of that, he says, I, I, I won't remember them anymore. Confess sin is cancelled sin. And God simply wills it out of existence. Thus it is, you see, when devil, the devil comes into the presence of God as the accuser of the brethren, and he comes into the presence of God to tell the truth about you, Mark you. The Lord Jesus, as our great high priest, as our advocate with the Father, when in comes the adversary, up stands the advocate, and he holds up his pierced hands. And God turns to the devil and says, I don't know what you're talking about. What sins are you talking about? There aren't any such sins. He says, thy sins and thine iniquities will I remember no more. When God forgives, he forgets. And those sins can never be raised against you again because God has willed them out of existence. The patriarch, the penitent, the patient, he healeth all our diseases. Now, it's very important at this point that we stop and look, because if we don't, we'll plunge off the deep end into error. He is not dealing here with the physical. He's dealing with the spiritual. Nowhere in the Bible does God unconditionally guarantee in this life to heal all our diseases. Nowhere. This name it, claim it uh, business is not in the Bible. God nowhere guarantees or promises that he will heal all our diseases. Nowhere. Otherwise you'd never die, would you? I'll tell you what he does. He heals every disease except the last one. Uh, you, you must pay attention to the context. It's always important in studying the Bible to look at the context. Especially when it's something controversial. When you look at the context, David is saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. Is that right? Who healeth all thy diseases. The word thy is a 
what we call a personal pronoun. Let me remind you of a little bit of basic grammar. Pronouns are nouns which stand for another noun. Right? That's what a pronoun is. It's a noun that stands for another noun. And the context always determines what that other noun is. Here the word die is a personal pronoun which stands for the noun soul. In the context. He healeth all thy, that is the soul's, diseases. That's what he promises to do, unconditionally. To heal all your soul's diseases. Oh, you say, I didn't know the soul had disease. Oh, yes, got lots, it's got lots of Guilt. Fear. Doubt. Anxiety. Depression. Anger. Lust. Hate. Jealousy. Spite. Greed. Those diseases. They can end up killing you, of course. Those things. We used to sing a well-known little hymn when I was a boy. There's not a friend like the lowly Jesus. No, not one. No, not one. None else can heal all thy soul's diseases. No, not one. No, not one. Now, it very often, happen, often happens, of course, that physical sickness is a direct result of soul sickness. That can often happen. You know, when, uh, after David sinned with Bathsheba, the guilt of that began to gnaw away, not only at his conscience, not only at his soul, but it began to gnaw away at his body. He tried to cover it up. He played the hypocrite. However, he couldn't sleep at night and he lost all taste for food and he became physically run down and his body became a prey to disease. The enemies gloated at it. They said, an evil disease cleaveth fast under him. They started to count down how long he was going to live. We aren't told directly what that disease was that got a hold of him in his run-down condition, but uh, many Bible scholars think that what actually happened to David was he contracted leprosy. It was an evil disease that cleaved past unto him. In one of his prayers, he said, oh God, he said, take thy stroke away from me. The Old Testament, the stroke of God was leprosy. I don't read that in the history books of the Old Testament, but you can certainly infer it from the poetic books of the Old Testament. Some of the things that David says about his condition, some of the things that other people said about him in his condition. Lover and friend, he says, hast thou put far from me? He was in the isolation ward. You can see David walking the corridors of his palace at night when everyone else is in bed. And if you'd been listening, 
You'd have heard him groaning and weeping and praying and, and looking at himself and breaking his heart in the presence of God because of what had happened to him. He got like that from his sin. It's a direct result of his bad behavior. God let an evil disease get a hold of him. God often does that. Young people today need to be warned what it's like out there in that world. There are evil diseases waiting for you out there. That will be the direct results of your behavior. In this case, it, it very often happens that the, the disease is not an infection that you catch from somebody. It, it's, it's something that comes on by the gnawings of a guilty conscience. You can't sleep and your whole physical being breaks down and you become a prey to these kind of things. When David's sin was dealt with, his, not only his soul's disease, but his physical disease was dealt with. There are some sins which are diseases which are direct result of sin. Paul said, for this cause, many are weak and, and sickly among you and some sleep. And what they had done, of course, was abuse the Lord's table. That's what they'd done. They hadn't gone off and committed adultery. They hadn't murdered anybody. They had just abused the Lord's table. I don't think, for instance, in James chapter 5, I don't think for one single moment that that has, has to do. That's an unconditional guarantee that if you're sick, you send for the elders and they come and pour some oil on you, crankcase oil, whatever it is they use, and, and uh, that you're automatically going to get better. I don't believe that's what that chapter teaches at all. And I know it's not true because it doesn't work. And I know it doesn't work because I tried it. It doesn't work. If it was an unconditional guarantee that if you're sick, you call for the elders and they come and pray for you and pour oil on you and you get better, if that's what it meant, every time you did it, it would work. Wouldn't? Unless, of course, you're going to resort to that old expedient and say, well, if you had enough faith, it would work. That's not what it says. Well, how do I know it doesn't work? When, when, when our little girl was born, our second little girl, she was cross-eyed. In fact, she was very badly cross-eyed. This one eye turned not only in but up, and when she looked that way, this eye kind of disappeared. I mean, it's uh, terrible for Paul to go, go through life looking like that. This is a fierce a situation. It, I mean, it wasn't actually, it wasn't just something that, that didn't look bad. It looked awful. preacher friend of mine, who I trusted in those days, a man I thought knew better, thought I, I thought he was walking close to God, which he may, may well have been, but he sure wasn't right on this. He said to me, what we need to do, he said, we need to get the elders, we need to come around your house, and we'd all kneel, kneel down around the baby's bed, and we'll put some oil on her and rub it in, and we'll pray that God will heal her, she'll get better. So I said, okay, we'll try it. So it is. I still remember the night. I could still see in my, my mind's eye the little bedroom where the little girl lay in her cot. And I can remember 
this man and some of our other friends coming in. I could still see them. And we all went into their bedroom and we all prayed around, around that little cot. And then this friend of mine took some oil in his hand and he rubbed it on the baby and prayed that the little baby would be healed. Prayer of faith shall heal the sick, he said. We went in next morning. Baby woke up. As cross-eyed as ever. Didn't work. It didn't work. Because that's not what it's all about. When the little girl was about uh, one year old, we took her down to the city of Vancouver to an eye specialist. The eye specialist looked at her condition. He said, well, he said, uh, it's nothing to get alarmed about. He said, nowadays we know exactly what to do with that condition. When she's two years of age, bring her back and we'll bring her into the hospital. We'll pop her eye out. We'll tie a little knot, he said, in the, in the muscle that controls the eye. We'll put the eye back in and within a week she'll be fine. Oh, we did. When she was two, we took her to Vancouver, took her to the children's hospital. The doctor took her in, popped the eye out, tied a knot in her muscle, put the eye back in. You wouldn't know it, that she was ever cross-eyed. God healed her. But not by rubbing oil. It's, 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 it's a lie to say that that always works. It doesn't always work. Well, I think I had about as much faith as anybody else. I believe... I believe God, I loved the Lord, I tried, I, I, did my, I, I put my faith in his word, and I thought that's what it said, because that's what this uh, older friend of mine who knew the Bible better than I did, that's what he said that it said, but it's not what it said. You read the contract, you, you'll discover that the man who's in that condition is under the discipline of the church. And there's sin in his life, that's why he sends for the elders. When you're sick, you don't send for the elders, you send for the doctors. The reason why he sent for the elders was because he had sinned against the church. And he was under church discipline. And as a result of being under church discipline, he was sick. When he got right, called the elders, confessed his sin, they, 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 they went through this uh, to, to demonstrate the fact that this was of God, and he got better. That's what it means. When it says he healeth all thy diseases, in the context in Psalm 103, it's the soul's diseases that he heals. And when David confessed his sin, and the prophet said, and God hath put away thy sin, David got better. A picture of a patriarch, a picture of a patient, a penitent, and a picture of a patient. Now we, we have three other pictures here. A picture of a pauper, a picture of a prince, and a picture of a pensioner. They'll keep till next week. <laughs> Shall we pray? Father in heaven, thank you so much. We have 
such a wonderful word, it's true, every word of it, every chapter, every verse and every line, but we must rightly divide the word of truth, and we must discern carefully what you're saying, and not say that you're saying something that you aren't saying. And then go around blaming, blaming you because you don't do what you never said you would do. We pray that you will bless your word to our hearts. Thank you. Oh, bless the Lord, oh my soul, forget not all his enemies. Oh, bless the Lord, oh my.